0: In previous episodes of the Nexus podcast, experts from across the university showcased how Jefferson trains students to focus on sustainable practices in the classroom and beyond. Those areas ranged from fashion design students creating new garments from repurposed Converse sneakers and vintage gloves, and the impacts of climate change and climate-related disasters on health and healthcare delivery, to the creation of the multidisciplinary Institute for Smart and Healthy Cities you can access those episodes by visiting jefferson.edu backslash the nexus. Still, the topic is of such acute interest to students and faculty that to commemorate October's standing as National Sustainability Month, we wanted to revisit the area and highlight additional means through which the focus turns to sustainability. In this episode of the Nexus Podcast, you will hear from those who established our College of Architecture and the Built Environment as one of the earliest architecture programs to zero in on sustainable design as an area of focus. You'll also hear from folks at the Canbar College of Design, Engineering, and Commerce who, upon fielding requests from students interested in learning more, are in the second year of offering an Introduction to Life Cycle Assessment elective, which applies sustainability on a more granular level. Before we get into that fall semester offering, let's start this story back in the mid-aughts, when the shift to establish the College of Architecture and the Built Environment as being among the oldest sustainable design programs in the country started in earnest.
1: Hi, I'm Barbara Klinghammer. I'm the Dean of the College of Architecture and the Built Environment at Thomas Jefferson University. We founded the Master of Science in Sustainable Design program in 2007. The program was initially opened in 2008 with the first cohort coming into the college and has ever since graduated almost 400 students. So we have had a significant impact on the communities, neighborhoods, and cities where these graduates today serve. Dean Klinkhammer noted that the program was co-founded by former
0: program director Rob Fleming and current faculty members Chris Pastor and Rob Fryer, the latter of whom you'll hear from about an innovative master's program later in this episode.
1: The program itself was envisioned by the country's top sustainable designers and experienced sustainability professors in the architectural fields. We created an award-winning transdisciplinary and collaborative design program that has won many awards throughout its 16-year existence. It's a program that is focused really on market-driven solutions for students who want to become leaders in sustainable design and better serve our society. Society today. Out of the program not only came our graduates who are impacting societies around the world, but also a number of publications that came out of the writings, research, and two really important books used around the country as textbooks by other sustainable design programs or by professionals to really impact their designs. What was the mindset behind the implementation of this the United States was different than the European countries at the time who really had a much earlier understanding of the impact of sustainable design on the profession and society. This sounds really, looking back today, very obsolete. But in 2007, climate change was understood by scientists that it was going to happen. But climate change was not recognized in the way that it's recognized today by broad society and by politicians. So in 2007, we were one of the first universities in the country that founded this new program, and it immediately took off in a great way. We had a number of students entering the program that, after graduation, started to particularly impact Philadelphia and this region in the beginning, where most of our students came from. So the city of Philadelphia, a lot of the community development groups, etc., actually were the ones that, who hired our graduates. We immediately started to impact the thinking of these organizations this is really a time when officially politicians and the world really started thinking about sustainability as a major force to prevent catastrophe and to make the life of billions of people better life or create better lives for them we were really ahead of the curve our program was created at the right time it took off really quickly and we are still a program in the United States that has one of the best reputations as a program educating future sustainable designers.
0: What is the importance of sustainability in design?
1: I want to give you a couple of numbers from some reputable websites, one of which is Architecture 230. If you think about the global building floor area today, or in the early 1920s, that building floor area is going to double by 2060. According to this website, 2.6 trillion square feet are going to be added to the global building stock. That is adding an entire city like New York every month. That's really huge in terms of what the amount of infrastructure, buildings, particularly buildings we are adding to this world. A lot of it has to do with the urban areas growing really rapidly, particularly in the global south, cities really growing at a rapid rate, and people flocking to urban areas. If you think about the impact that building and infrastructure projects have on CO2 emissions, it is actually the largest factor Building and infrastructure projects with operations and embodied carbon contribute 42% to annual global CO2 emissions. Now put that in comparison to transport or industry. Transportation is only 22%. We're talking about e-cars all the time, but really, if you look at buildings and the CO2 emissions that we cause through the operations and through the embodied carbon, particularly of some of the materials like cement, iron, steel, and aluminum, which are high energy materials, our industry really affects at the highest level CO2 emissions. We all know that CO2 emissions drive climate change, it drives the rise in temperature around the world. If we can, as an industry, lower the carbon emissions, we would probably have one of the strongest impact on the total CO2 emissions. That's really where the importance of understanding the building process, the operations of buildings and the materials that we use. It's not just the actual design of buildings, but it's also the operations of buildings, the ways we can save energy through sophisticated or highly effective heating and cooling systems that don't use fossil fuel. Those numbers really show you how important it is for our students and for professionals to understand the implications of our industry and what we need to change.
0: What are we seeing locally that speaks to this importance?
1: We all can can contribute to the looming issue of rising temperatures and the effect it has on a changing climate that we all see with hotter summers, more and stronger hurricanes or any kind of weather that really impacts our local area. We have seen this just recently with the flooding in New York with another storm that just came through. So it really hits home, right? The more these temperature rises get out of control, the more we will see the effects of climate change that will really hit our own neighborhood, our own homes. What can we do to mitigate those impacts? Let's just start with building homes and building buildings, really looking at materials that have less CO2 emissions. The use of materials like timber really is becoming a major construction material, even with high-rise buildings. There are ways of looking at material resources that have a smaller impact on the environment or a bigger impact in the sense of saving energy and saving CO2 emissions. How we source these materials, do they come from within our range of 100 miles, 200 miles, 500 miles, or do they come from overseas, right? That contributes enormously to total life cycle CO2 emissions of a building. It goes really into detailing of how you design a building, how much energy is let into the building, how much energy does a building lose during cold winters, during summers, how does the sun penetrate the building, heats up the building inside. So they're all measures of how we can think about this. Architects here have a really deciding role, and but also in the discussions that we have with clients, we really have to bring these up as important, maybe sometimes expensive mitigations, but they're important over the lifetime of a building. When taken into consideration, you can easily do the math to actually find out how much energy do you save over a long time. There are many ways today to also look into the actual use, where the energy comes from, that each of us is using. There federal programs, there are Pennsylvania programs that allow you to use renewable energies through your local utility provider. How about on a larger societal scale? There's a lot of other things that I think are important is the expansion of public transportation, safe public transportation, to avoid having cars trans- and other fossil fuel um, transportation systems in the city and using more energy efficient transportation systems. Biking is another option as long as the city provides safe biking and biking lanes which I do believe are really important in cities like Philadelphia that allow individuals to use alternatives to using the car.
0: Are there any plans for the program going forward? Are you envisioning any sort of inclusion of different focuses brought in as it establishes itself deeper?
1: We revise programs on a regular basis to really make sure that we include contemporary issues and challenges that our students need to know. We really have the program structured in a way that individuals with different ways of being able to participate from locally regionally or far away can actually participate in a program and graduate from the program i'm also very happy about the increased international reach of our program when we started we were mostly a local regional program today we are a national international program that really reaches far beyond the borders of the united states the program has won a lot of national and international awards it's not just our program our students winning awards we just hired a new faculty member so i'm very proud proud of Professor Seglinda Roberts, who joined us, who has been a co-author of many of the books that Professor Rob Fleming has co-authored with him. So we're very happy to have her on our faculty today.
0: Just referenced by Dean Klinkhammer, Professor Seglinda Roberts, along with program co-founder Rob Fryer, are at the helm of the MS in Sustainable Design program both sat down recently to discuss how bigger picture issues are addressed in their courses. They also went into detail about the courses themselves.
2: I'm Rob Fryer. I'm the director and professor and co-founder in the MS in Sustainable Design Program. I started here in a different role 19 years ago, and I've been a professor for 17.
3: I'm Zeglinda Roberts. I'm an assistant professor in the Master of Sustainable Design Program. I've just started this fall. What brought me here was the opportunity to be able to teach in the Masters of Sustainable Design program.
2: The Masters in Sustainable Design is typically a two-year program. So Seglinda and I are teaching several courses for both first- and second-year students. For first-year students, our classes lay the foundation for understanding our innovative approach to sustainable design, the frameworks and the skills, and how to apply them immediately.
3: The second year we usually go into studios where we take the strategies and the principles that we've talked about in the first year and then we apply them to multiple scales of sustainable design from the individual scale through the building scale up to the urban and social scale. 601 is a foundational course from the first year. It really helps students get a broad view of what sustainable design is and to learn to think in a more comprehensive and inclusive way and also to understand that there's decisions and anything, their design solutions have a long-term reciprocal effect on society and the environment for many years to follow.
2: The adaptive and resilient design course looks at the importance of and strategies to increase the adaptability and resilience of the built environment. We look at three projects at different scales, one at the human scale, and then at the building and site scale, and then at the city scale. They'll explore issues about how do you design for a climate when it's changing. When most buildings go obsolete very quickly, how do you future-proof any building that you design so that it can last well into the future, we're talking like hundreds of years. It's the core where they really get to apply what they learn in course, where most other sustainable design programs focus on just improving the energy efficiency of the building. That's a part of it, but it's not sufficient. We need to look at other perspectives, such as what's the experience? Are we creating a design that can subjectively influence people, improve their well-being? Can we also relate to the culture and context? because we know if buildings are either not beloved by the community or don't serve the community, then it doesn't matter how energy efficient they are. They're not sustainable. That's part of what we teach. The other part is because all of sustainability works across scales. What you do, for example, in a building will impact what's done around the site or vice versa, and things done at the city scale can influence things that happen on your site. So we need to think across scales and across time in order to align initiatives at those different scales. So what's happening on your building and at the city can support each other. Our studios are very important. This semester, students are involved in creating a net zero building. It's a different design process. It's a very innovative design process that isn't taught probably anywhere else. They are learning how to design sustainable buildings first instead of what's done in other programs is sustainability is usually tacked on at the end of a traditional design process. We threw that out and started over. If you do this in practice, it makes it very easy for those sustainability initiatives or techniques that you've used at the end of the process to be cut when it runs up against budget issues. But if it's baked in from the beginning, huge cost savings to implement them because everybody's working towards the same goals of trying to make sure that the sustainability portion of the project carries through. Really, we see sustainability as excellent design. We put sustainability first and then move into a traditional design process.
3: The way we talk about, the way we deal with sustainable design is really that, Rob had said before, it's way more than just energy efficiency. It's really considering all aspects of human in life and society and so we all are individuals we all live in a society we're all very much influenced by our society but also part of sustainable design and creating an environment not only from the earth but from what we live in from a culture is all sustainable if everybody isn't allowed to be the best they can be then none of us are going to be the best that we can be That's why we also address the social aspects. Understanding and connecting with the culture that you're in, which is very different across even our city, let alone the United States or the whole globe. That's how we really can start to meet people where they are and help them to be more sustainable.
2: As far as professional development, one of the reasons that we started this program in 2007 was because we saw a real need to affect change. We're up against a lot of urgent issues, climate change, flooding, and urban heat island effects, which are costing lives in the city. We have several courses during the year which teach them specific skills that make them very attractive after they graduate, things like being able to calculate the life cycle assessment of materials, being able to simulate building performance in several different software programs. But what we're probably most proud of is with our thesis courses. We have as part of the vision of the program that Because of the urgent issues that we face, we need to create change agents. The status quo can't continue and we feel that very urgently. So we use the thesis as a launch pad for their career after graduation. We've had probably 10 to 15 successful businesses launched through the thesis sequence. We've had students use that to change their careers because not all students have a design background coming into the program. Or if they do have a design background, they're able to continue in that career course but find employment at higher rates than others and also find very prestigious
0: positions. So we're proud of that. But we specifically
2: design our thesis in order for people to have a successful career afterwards and to prepare them for that.
0: What are we seeing locally that speaks to the importance of this educational track? We've seen, for example, in 2011,
2: Hurricane Irene, which was the worst flooding in Philadelphia history for 140 years. And just 10 years later, we had Hurricane Ida, which broke those records. So we've seen a transition From 140 years to breaking records to just 10. So there are extreme weather events that are becoming much more frequent. We see flooding issues. We have a combined storm and sewer system in Philadelphia, which causes a problem. And so we have stormwater system issues, which the city has been addressing through its green infrastructure program. There's also, as I mentioned before, some loss of lives due to heat island effect. And there's also just generally a large loss of biodiversity because of the change of land use due to development.
3: We also were talking about heat island effect that happens again from increased development or more impervious surface. And then also social inequity access to food, and access to higher education or jobs, and the downward spirals that can happen when generation after generation don't have access to the things that we would consider standard.
2: Locally in Philadelphia, we see a huge difference between what sort of amenities or even what the streetscape looks like, depending on what neighborhood you're in. It obviously hits those who are less well off compared to the affluent neighborhoods. And that's where, for example, with the heat island effect, most deaths occur because mm-hmm. they're in less efficient buildings, unable to afford the increased costs for cooling. And then we see the same thing happening in winter where it's sometimes difficult for people to afford heating. And that's all due to the design of the built environment.
3: There's growing supporting findings that things like exposure to trees or green space affect us in a physiological way. They affect our health and our well-being and the efficiency of our bodies without us even knowing it. There's a big difference between the affluent neighborhoods, the number of trees, green space and availability, and the areas that aren't.
0: Are you seeing students come to Jefferson specifically for this line of academic pursuit? Absolutely. They're very attracted to the transdisciplinary
2: nature of the program. On faculty, we have interior architects, engineers, landscape architects, urban planners, and it takes that kind of transdisciplinary effort in order to have a truly integral, sustainable design at the end of it, so that's one of the major things that attract students. Also, one of the things that they value the most is their ability to think critically. We give them the ability to discern whether or not claims, there's a lot of what's called greenwashing, which are false claims about something being sustainable. So we start them off in the first semester with some tools to start to inform their own experiences and intuition in order to look at claims made by other architects and designers about sustainability and to think more critically
3: about it. When Rob was talking about what makes our students attractive, being able to think critically and in a comprehensive way Mm -hmm. is also something that is very valued because they can go out into the profession and they can really see and evaluate a problem because until you do that you're not going to come up with a really effective solution.
0: As with many things involved in the university's nexus learning approach, many of these sustainability advances resulted from cross-disciplinary collaborations. In this case, Cabe and Kanbar teamed up.
4: Hi, I'm Ron Kander. I am Dean of the Canbar College of Design, Engineering, and Commerce here at Thomas Jefferson University. I also serve as a Senior Associate Provost for Applied Research.
0: Can you tell me a bit about the evolution of sustainability research slash academics at Jefferson, namely... Handbar's role in teaming up with CABE years ago? The sustainability and life
4: cycle assessment and circular economy discussions have been going on and off for several years. Obviously, students are very interested in this topic and how it relates to their various majors. There's a sustainability focus in CABE on the built environment and sustainable systems. At their scale, then in our college, there's a focus on sustainability and sustainable systems at more of a product and services scale. We got together when they formed the Institute for Smart and Healthy Cities, because one of the focuses there is to attack Smart and Healthy Cities at all spatial scales. Thinking about it from the cave scale of entire cities and city infrastructures all the way down to technologies and systems and products that might come out of my college that could assist in that endeavor
0: that really speaks to Jefferson's nexus learning approach where cooperation amongst colleges comes into play for a more well-rounded education? That's, that's
4: absolutely true. But the topic specifically of sustainability is so multidimensional that really the only way to address it is across multiple disciplines. It's not a topic that you can look at with blinders on. I, I describe four dimensions of sustainability that you have to consider simultaneously. Technical sustainability is a product or a service sustainable technically, but those technical technologies you have to realize exist within economies. So systems have to be economically sustainable. Those economies exist in societies, so you have to have social sustainability elements. And then those societies exist on the planet, so you have to have the environmental sustainability. A lot of people think of the word sustainability to mean environmental sustainability, but unless you have performance, profit, people, and planet, if you all four of those, then you actually have a truly sustainable system. You could have the best environmental solution in the world. If it's not an economically viable solution, you're out of business in four nanoseconds, you haven't impacted the problem.
0: What do you think about sustainability is so appealing to students?
4: My half-serious, half-joking answer when I talk to the students is that when I was their age, we were being told in the 1960s and 70s that conserving the planet for the next generation is an important task that we we had to do in order to sustain all the water, air, and solid waste and taking care of the planet so that rivers didn't catch on fire like they did back then. I tell the students... We tried and we blew it, (laughs) swing and a miss on on my generation's part. So it is now being their responsibility to try to solve the problems that we didn't solve in, in my generation. But seriously, they see that the impacts of neglecting these problems at the planetary scale are going to hit reality in their lifetime. People of my generation, I'm a end of the line baby boomer. I'm at the the tail end of the baby boom generation. Yes, we'll see the effects, but we will be long gone before this becomes a critical problem. Whereas the students today, it will be in the middle of their lifetimes. They know this is something they have to address. They care about it. And to their credit, students today are more interested in careers that actually have an impact on society and the planet as opposed to, I have to make money. One of the common phrases that I've heard is that baby boomer generation, we lived to work. This generation works to live. They understand that their job has to make their life better. They care about it from that point of view. What I love about it is it's so interconnected and multidisciplinary that as an educator, it is a great vehicle to get the students cited about learning the basic things we want them to learn. The basic information we have to teach, you have to find a hook a problem that a student is excited about to make them want to learn, in our case, the math or the science or whatever to solve a problem. So it's a great subject because they care about it and we can easily connect to that in order to teach the things we need to teach.
0: I'm Gen X, and I think my generation blew it as well. We were pushing it in a better direction, but I think the politics of the day tamped down and our just detachment.
4: You bring up a really good point, though, because one of the things I do talk to the students about, seriously, because this is such a big problem, they can get frustrated that it doesn't move fast. If you look at the, at least in the United States, our political system, it typically takes two generations to attack a problem. Look at seatbelts, look at smoking, So you have a generation that acknowledges it's a problem, but doesn't do anything. And that's sort of us, me. Then there's you guys who acknowledged it was a problem and started to try to figure out how to solve it, but couldn't. And then the next generation is the one that now takes those ideas and actually starts implementing things. That's one of the hidden beauties of being an academic and being at a university. If you look at the news headlines, it's easy to get disgruntled and lose hope. But when you're around these 18 to 25 year olds that I'm around every day on campus and you see what they care about and what their capabilities are, If these are the folks running the world when I'm retired, I'm good with that. This may be sound cynical, but you don't need the entire world's population. You need 10 or 20% of the people who are going to step up and lead and care and everybody else will follow. If we've got that 10 or 20% coming out now, they'll take care of the world.
0: Talk to me a bit about the graduate introduction to life cycle assessment.
4: It came about because of student interest. The graduate students collectively asked for it. That's why I chose to develop it. They heard many of us talk about the topic in various classes, and they just said, we want a course that focuses on this skill. I start with the concept of sustainability. That goes back in the US to, well, even in Europe, where it started earlier, to the 1980s is where that kind of started with some reports in the EU. And then in the US, it was, I think, like 1999 that we had the first federal government report. So there was a US report, there was a World Commission that started to really define this idea of sustainability. And like I said earlier, I think about it on those four dimensions, technical sustainability, economic sustainability, social sustainability, and environmental sustainability. With that as a concept, then the second sort of wave of information that started to enter the lexicon is circular economy. A circular economy was defined by EPA as when you you have a systems approach that allows you to take processes and economic activities and make them as restorative and regenerative as possible so that they're completely circular and you completely minimize or eliminate waste from the system. There are economic benefits to that as much as there are environmental benefits. Then I get to life cycle assessment because life cycle assessment is really the metric that you can use to measure sustainability and circular economies. It is an accounting system, if you will, that says from cradle to grave of a product or a service, can we account for all the energy in, all the materials in, and all the products that come out and all the waste streams that come out and collectively measure all of them and then model that as a complete impact on the environment or an economic impact on the world. It is a tedious process, but it's a very rewarding process to collect that information and then make a quantitative assessment. Because the problem with sustainability and circular economy discussions is most of the information is anecdotal. Should you use a plastic bag at the grocery store or a paper bag at the grocery store? You should use a plastic soda bottle or a can, aluminum can. It's easy to talk about those um, qualitatively. But until you sit and actually do that cradle-to-grave analysis, can you say this one is impact on global warming is five times bigger than this option's impact on global warming? So that's what life cycle assessment does. There's an, an international standard, ISO 14,000 set of standards, and ISO is the international organization for standards in, in engineering and other industries. They have a four step process that is a goal and scoping step where you obviously set the goal of your project, the scope of what you're going to look at. Are you going to study from raw materials to when it leaves your factory? Are you going to include the use? Are you going to include the disposal? What's the scope of your analysis? Then you do what's called a life cycle inventory where you, this is the tedious part, you go gather all of that data, how much energy is going in each step, how much material is going in each step. The third step is it goes into the software and the software organizes that for you and uses databases of impacts To say, if I use this much energy and it's coming from a coal-fired plant, for example, what does that relate to in amount of global warming gases that are released or whatever? If I'm using that truck to transport my product across the country, what does that mean in terms of total energy that I've used? It does all that impact assessment for you and gives you a readout of not only all of those impacts, but at which step in the process are they occurring? Is it happening from the material? Is it from the manufacturing? Is it from the transportation? Is it from the use? And that's important because that's how you make rational decisions to improve the product. Maybe your company says, oh, if we use more fuel efficient trucks, we would save greenhouse gases in our company and that would be a good thing. They might do an analysis and realize that 5% of your total impact is coming from your transportation step. 95% of it's coming from your manufacturing step. So don't spend your time doing that solution. Go spend it where you're actually having an impact. And then the last step is an interpretation step, which is the very difficult part of saying, how do you trade these things off? How do you interpret what it actually means? So What if I have two scenarios to make my product? Scenario A creates more global warming gases than scenario B but scenario B releases more carcinogens than scenario A. So now how do you put a relative value? Which of those am I going to value more than the other? Is it the human impact? Is it the global impact? That's where policy comes in above science and economics even is, is as a society, which of these do we care about the most and why? As you can imagine, the class is really fun to teach because it's forcing mostly engineering students and science students that are in my class to have to realize that the best engineering solution is never the best solution. There's always economics, politics, and social impacts that are gonna attenuate that solution and make you have to make compromises. And that's hard for students to understand.
0: How do you make that final decision?
4: That's where a broader systems level thinking really comes in. And that's one of the things I focus on in the course. For example, the discussion about whether electric vehicles versus gasoline powered vehicles are a better solution for transportation and mobility, right? You figure out really quick that electric vehicle is not a zero emission vehicle because all of the materials it takes to make it, the lithium you need to make the batteries, you're going to have to dispose of those batteries at some point in in, in the future. You have to generate the electricity somewhere, or you're doing it at a coal-fired plant or a natural gas-fired plant to charge those batteries. So the life cycle of both of those products has impacts on the environment. But if you're a true systems thinker, you can back off and say, the question is really not, do we drive electric vehicles versus gasoline vehicles? It's what is the long-term mobility solutions for us as a society? Is it more rapid transit? Is it rail systems? Is it better bus systems? Is it urbanization so that people don't have to travel as far. What are the broader level solutions on mobility?
0: I think the, the easy answer for that would be just do what Europe's doing because they're so far ahead of us. The
4: good news is the reason that Europe is ahead of us is all of these techniques, circular economy, life cycle assessment, sustainability metrics started in Europe. They're about 10 or 15 years ahead of us on this topic. They have incorporated those techniques into their policy decisions. And that's why you see the direction that they've gone in some of those things. And there are legislations that force companies to do things that we don't have yet in the U.S., but they are an example of where we can end up 10 or 15 years from now if we start incorporating these kind of solutions into what we do. And the good news about looking at circular economy solutions is that they can also make economic sense generate jobs, generate profit for companies. Because if they don't, people aren't going to do it, right? Business models are some of the places where the biggest environmental impacts can be saved. There are companies in Europe now, two two companies that are doing this. One is lighting systems. So if you build a building in the Netherlands, rather than you buying light fixtures and buying light bulbs, you purchase lighting as a service from a company. You pay a monthly fee They put in light fixtures, put in light bulbs, provide you the light, and then they make a profit by how efficient they can make that system. So if they can come up with highly efficient light bulbs, use less electricity, give you all the light you need, but do it at the lowest cost with the least amount of energy and least amount of materials, they make more money. So there's an economic incentive. Same thing is true with carpeting. Rather than you buying carpet for your building, you can hire a carpeting service and they will install and repair carpeting for a monthly fee. Now they need to make the most recyclable carpeting, make it as cheaply as they can, make it as durable as they can. So, that they then get generated profit. So, there are business models that will work in a circular economy.
0: Dean Kander says that the course started last fall with this semester's cohort of a half dozen to 10 students representing its second groups.
4: The student response to the course has been amazing. I have many writing assignments and reflective essays built into the course, in addition to having to learn and use the life cycle assessment software and actually do analyses themselves. This is an elective, but it's attracting the students who want to think about this problem on both of those dimensions. That's a person who's willing to learn how to use a software package and go in and plug in the details and get detailed quantitative answers, but is also willing to back off and write a reflective essay about The impact of some of these problems on politics, on laws, on business models, on social sustainability, as you can imagine, leads to the most exciting and interesting conversations in class. This course meets for three hours one day a week on Monday, Wednesday evenings. You'd think that it would be difficult to sustain the energy in the room for three hours at night, and we never leave the room dragging. We leave the room like having to stop because of the clock. They're voting with their feet. They're voting with their minds. They're voting with their time that this topic is resonating with students, which is a good thing.
0: To learn more about this and other Jefferson stories, please visit jefferson.edu backslash the nexus. Today's interviews were conducted by Brian Hickey with production support from Dan Bernstein. Thank you for listening.